this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. You know, the subtitle for my book, Built to Sell, is called Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. Why? Because I think that's the ultimate poker hand in the game of life. If you've got a business that can succeed without you doing all the work, you've got lots of options, right? You could sell it. You could bring in a manager. You could sell part of it. Lots of options. And I think the prerequisite for building a business that can thrive without you is having standard operating procedures. Having a set of guidelines where you can delegate your most important tasks and projects to your team and have them do them just as well as you would do them. We've just developed a brand new ebook and you can get a free copy at builttosell.com slash SOP. It will give you the instructions for creating SOPs. It'll tell you what to document, the difference between auditory learners and visual learners and kinetic learners, and how you can make sure your SOPs relate to all those different types of individuals. Again, go to builttosell.com slash SOP to download a free copy of the ebook. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio Intel, where we break down the latest episodes of Built to Sell Radio, and I am joined by my host and my partner, co-host, Dr. Jeremy Weiss. Take it away, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. And, and, you know, if people are tuning in, this is a recap of the biggest takeaways from last month on Built to Sell Radio. And, and John, I categorize this month as the fanboy month. There, there's several people who came on, and John is super modest, by the way. They came on, they're like, I read Built to Sell, and then I sold my company, I learned from it, and it was amazing to hear that. And um, so John's going to overlay his thoughts and advice, which I'm excited to hear. He does an amazing job asking the questions, but now we get to hear his insights. And if you don't know John, <clears throat> John Worrell is the founder of the Value Builder System. It's a practice management software that helps business advisors automate their processes to win and keep the best clients. Now, the Value Builder system incorporates several diagnostic tools, including the Value Builder score. It's offered by the global network of the certified Value value Builder advisors. And if you don't know the score, you should go. Go to builttosell.com. You can take it. Achieve a Value Builder score of 90 or greater are worth double the average performing business. So you can see how you weigh against the the actual score. His best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business that Can Thrive Without You, was recognized by both Fortune, Inc. It was one of the best business books um, in 2011, still is. Um, He's the host of Built to Sell Radio, so check out episodes. And if you're listening to this, you may be already subscribed. And he wrote the best-selling book, also The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in the Industry, and to complete the trilogy, The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies, and Secret Hacks for Exiting at the Top, Check that out. You can go to builttosell.com, builttosell.com slash radio. And one of the things, John, that comes up over and over in these interviews is SOPs, procedures. So if you want to check those out, you can go to builttosell.com slash SOP. They have written a book, on an ebook on that, and you can go there. John, I want to start with um, Andy Cabasso. And um, Andy Cabasso co-founded Jurist Page, and uh, you can check that episode out. It's a marketing agency specializing in helping law firms. And three years later, Jurist Page had service contracts with more than 200 law firms, and they got a call from Uptime Legal, and um, it was a practice management software for law firms. And they acquired it in a seven-figure deal. Um, and there's a lot to learn from this, and I'd love to hear. John, what your thoughts are, what you liked about this story. Yeah, Andy was a great interview and, and really reminded me of the the old Steve Jobs quote, um, you know, he's most proud of the things he did not do versus the things he did. You know, I think the, the quote is something like, you know, you got to say no to a hundred things. And he was very proud of that discipline. And I think Andy showed the same degree of discipline because they were websites for lawyers 
And early on in his career, he started to get calls from other professional firms, architectural firms, graphic designers, whatever, and saying, hey, we saw, you know, can you do a website for us? And it was credit, he said no. He had a niche, they had a vision for doing just websites for lawyers. And despite lots of people asking him to do websites, he stuck to his niche. And I think it was a big reason that, you know, they were acquired by uptime. If, if they'd gone and wandering off into other niches, they would never have been attracted to uptime that just focuses on practice management software for lawyers. The other thing he did, which I thought was really cool, and again, very disciplined, was turn down anyone who wouldn't give him the web hosting contract. So as you know, when you build a website, you've got web design and the development of the site, and then you've got to host the site somewhere. And he had, you know, he offered both. The web hosting was obviously the sticky service that gave him the recurring revenue, which we know is one of the big drivers of value. He wouldn't do websites for people who just wanted him to build a site and then they had a place that they were going to host it themselves. He said, no, it's kind of all in or nothing. And again, when he went to, to sell, he had this beautiful revenue stream that was recurring a bit of an annuity stream and it, and it helped him tremendously in the negotiation with uptime. So I just think he's a, a great uh, you know, spokesperson for the power of discipline and, and saying no more than yes. Yeah, I mean, you asked him, was he enticed at any point? And, and what, what um, I guess, what should be that enticing point? Because you hear like Google, they reserve 25% of their time so that they can innovate and, and expand possibly services and learn new things as opposed to really just sticking. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on how strict should someone be or have you seen people uh, be with this staying disciplined? Yeah, I mean, look, I think once you reach the scale of Google or Tesla or some, you know, some giant corporation that's well-funded and you've got more money than you know what to do with, certainly building out other products for, for different markets makes a ton of sense. I go back to the Ansoft matrix, which was the uh, uh, the one that, that said that the safest thing to do is launch an exist, a new product to an existing customer base. The second uh, you know, safest thing is, is, a, is, a, is finding a new, new market for an existing product the least safe thing to do and the highest risk is a new market, new product. And I think that's probably a decent format to follow. So, uh, but again, one of the things we spent a lot of time on at Value Builder is this idea that, that it can be so tempting to cross sell new services to existing customers because they're just, it's so easy. They're, they're, they already trust you. They already know who you are. You already have a relationship with them. Oftentimes you have their credit card on file yet for every new product you launch into that existing install base, you may actually undermine the value of your company. Because again, if we look at uptime's acquisition of Jira's page, Uptime saw a very clean peanut butter and jelly kind of fit. Like it wasn't some weird company that did websites for lawyers, but also did websites for uh, you know restaurants, which they wouldn't have known what to do with. They had a very clean offering and that made it very easy for Uptime to say, great, we can take that entire business and put it under our stream and, and get tremendous value. And, and that's, that's something a lot of folks miss is they is they they chase revenue, but if the revenue is getting wandering off into products and services that acquires won't value, it's it's really not adding any value to your company and maybe adding lots of complexity, sopping up a lot of cash, yet not adding ultimately value that that uh, that you're chasing. Yeah, no, I love that. We should also let people know they can um, uh, they can ask questions. Yes. If you have questions. Uh, Go in the right. chat, ask questions. We will take your questions on this. Um, and throughout, just put your questions in the chat. I'll be uh, paying attention to that. And uh, I would encourage, if you are listening to the podcast, is there a place they could sign up for the monthly webinar so they can show up and ask questions? Uh, yeah, just just sign up at builttocell.com. Okay, builttocell.com. And, and then they'll get... Uh, cool. They'll get, and Haley was saying a, about uh, screen share. Yeah, we. I yeah. see. Uh, you know, we're just trying to get that screen share set up, but we'll keep okay. going. And uh, yeah, keep going. Yeah. So, um, let me take the first question here. Um, from Leona. Okay. Um, let me see here. So Leona said, "What are the most common mistakes you hear owners admit to post the sale that resulted in less money or too much stress or almost not making it in the end?" What are the most common things people say post-sale? 
Yeah, they admit to post-sale that a mistake that they made that maybe resulted in less money or too much stress or some other aspect of, of the sale. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the most common thing I hear uh, is, yeah, let's think about that. I mean, I think it's probably not not realizing the depth of due diligence. I mean, you know, people kind of sign a letter of intent and, you know, lots of the kind of key deal points are hashed out at that stage. And so in a lot of cases, they assume the deal is done. What they don't realize is that that's really just the first gate and the big test is yet to come, which is due diligence. Oftentimes that can take you know, 60, 90 days, it can be exhausting. And also, you know, take people in a place where they had no idea they would go. So, you know, acquirers can ask for things like really weird, idiosyncratic things that you never would have thought they would wanted to see. Uh, you know, your the licenses for your software that, you know, you're you're using or like, you know, your your commercial lease or all kinds of things that you probably haven't thought about in many years. And I think the most common thing I hear about Leona is just not, is underestimating how difficult due diligence is. Mm. It was interesting because you hear people handle that differently, you know, when, and we'll talk about uh, Arlene's, uh, their uh, story a little bit. Um, and they really involve their staff and other people don't involve their staff at all. So that kind of goes to the the question of, do you tell how how many staff do you tell? How do you tell them? Because that probably I imagine would if you have some staff, it takes the burden off the owner. Sure, sure. I mean, the challenge with telling staff, of course, is that when you do, they they generally you know fix up their LinkedIn resume and start shopping. In particular, <laughs> in, in this environment where you know employees are being uh, you know a resigning at unprecedented levels, b being you know, recruited all over the place, it's hard to retain people. And so if you tell them, hey, I'm thinking of selling my company, some will be happy for you, but most will think, okay, you know, my job is probably going to go away. It's ironic because for many, you know, your job is never safer than when you get acquired because the new acquirer needs to monetize what they bought. But that doesn't stop people from um, thinking their job is at risk. And so, you know, that and, and the fact that through due diligence, back to Leona's point, lots of deals fall apart. And so if you're, you know, if if you tell your employees, then for some reason your deal doesn't get done, it can it, it can create chaos for for no reason. So I'm, you know, I'm a big believer in not telling employees unless you absolutely have to. One or two that you know you've got under NDA, fine, but but not the rank and file employees. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. So um, the next interview, John was Jay. Gold and uh, he co-founded Bolt, a video sharing website that grew to more than 40 million monthly users. At that time, Google, I believe, acquired YouTube, and so the estimated value based on that uh, of his company, Bolt, was worth his share was worth more than 100 million dollars. And then um, they got hit with a lawsuit, and it went to zero. And so he went from being worth millions to nothing, essentially. And then he went back. And he built Yashi, which is a platform that helped advertisers buy ads on video content. Yashi grew to more than 25 million in revenue, more than 5 million in EBITDA. And when he received an offer, uh, it was for $33 million from Nextstar Broadcasting. And it was a six times EBITDA. And he wasn't sure, you know, because they were making a lot of money. John, you even put, you even pointed that out on the episode of, yeah. uh, you challenged him a little bit on it. Um, so what did you like? What was interesting about, Jay's episode. And he was one of those people that said, I remember going, I don't know if it was his honeymoon, but he went to Hawaii and he had your book and he was reading your book on his trip to Hawaii. And he said, you know, he was raving about it. No, it's yeah. I remember, remember. Jay's great, by the way. Jay's an awesome entrepreneur and, and has his own podcast. So he's definitely worth a listen uh, and talks a mile a minute. So, so strap on, he goes fast. He, uh, what I found really interesting about this interview was the, the difference between kind of theoretical value and real value. So the theoretical value is what you described in your opening remarks about the story that when Google acquired YouTube, they, one way to, they valued the business was based on 
uh, you know, views, page views, video views. And based on that metric, he then applied that to how many views he was getting at Bolt, his company that did video sharing. And he's like, man, like I'm worth a hundred million dollars. If Google's willing to buy YouTube for this valuation, then clearly by extrapolation, I'm theoretically worth a huge amount of money. And I, I underscore the word theoretically, because of course it's not real. Comparing yourself with another acquisition when you don't know the intimate details of that acquisition is, is dangerous, number one. Number two, you know, oftentimes entrepreneurs are tempted to compare themselves with publicly traded companies because the multiples are out there, right? And they look at, you know, maybe they're a, an advertising agency and they look at, you know, Omnicom, some giant advertising agency with, you know, billions and billions of revenue. And they think, well, they're trading at 16 times EBITDA, therefore I'm, worth 16 times even or whatever. Of course, it's it's not an apples to apples comparison, but, uh, but Jay was making that mistake. And, and he admitted, uh, I'm not telling tales out of school. He, he made, you know, he, he said as such. Um, but when a law firm basically put Bolt, or uh, a legal proceeding basically put Bolt out of business, uh, it all went to zero. And he came really uh, fast. It, it, it hit him that, the theoretical value he'd been sort of counting on was was just that theoretical and so when he went and 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 built yashi he didn't uh, like just before he sold they did and raised a, a, a round of capital and at that time the implied valuation based on the capital raise was 75 million dollars for yashi and he owned most of it and so he kind of in his mind was like on his way back to this like nine figure net worth but then the the kind of the story of his valuation going to zero was still kind of rattling around in his brain. And so when he got an offer from Nextar, it was for six times EBITDA. And 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 he kind of he he sort of hesitated, but he took it. And I asked him, like, six times EBITDA is is a good price for a small business, but you're a fast growing technology company with recurring, I mean it seems a little light relative to what you've created, especially in light of the fact that you had a valuation of $75 million like a few months ago. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but the theoretical valuation is different than real valuation. Mm -hmm. And it was this idea that $33 million is enough money for anybody to live for the rest of their lives and generational wealth that would you know, allow his grandkids to, to live for the rest of their lives. And so for him, it was like, I don't wanna make the same mistake twice. And so that that's why he chose to pull the trigger, even though it may have been leaving some money on the table. And I think that's a really good lesson, in particular these days where people are getting higher and higher valuations, a very frothy M&A market. You know, one thing um, that he brought up on the interview, John, when he was reading your book that kind of, I don't know if it changed, completely changed the trajectory. It kind of sounded like it did, where you in the book, Built to Sell, talk about the focus and systemizing the you know a uh, product or service, and at that point, it sounded like he almost said, "Okay, we're not going to do this anymore. We're only going to do." And he re almost renamed it, and it seemed like they moved forward with what they were best at in their core competency. Can you talk a little bit about that concept in the book and kind of what he what he gleaned from it? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to this the same you know the same insight that uh, that Andy Cabasso learned at Jer's page, and that that is that when you do one thing, it allow the focus helps you on many different dimensions. Clearly, from a marketing differentiation point of view, if you do one thing, then clearly you're easier to differentiate yourself. You can spread your message more clearly to your customers. But the the kind of hidden and much much more powerful benefit of specializing is actually below the water level, which is that when your employees know what they're doing and they're competent in what they're doing, they're able to take much more of the workload, right? So if, if you narrow down what you do, and again, in Andy's case, it would be like just websites for lawyers, it's much easier to train employees. Here's what lawyers need, here's what they don't like, here's the language, here's the lexicon, et cetera. Whereas if you're a wide, you know, a mile wide in in services and products, it's much more difficult to hire employees. So again, Jay chose to specialize, helped him on a marketing point of view, helped him build out his team, uh, and then obviously it, it helps from an acquisition perspective as well because again, acquirers are allergic to buying a hodgepodge business that has one product they like and five products they don't, or one service they want and three services they 
are going to eliminate. And, you know, business owners are going to be want to pay full price for their entire business, but acquirers may only value a portion of it and want to carve out that portion. And that's a death knell. So again, uh, Jay did it well. He he zeroed in and focused, helped him with his marketing, helped him with his hiring his people, and then ultimately when it came to a, a, his acquisition as well. Um, I'm going to get to a question here, which kind of relates to this story. Um, and then let me know, John, if there's anything else um, that we should talk about on 4J. But um, this person, Joe says, how do you know if the reason I would want to sell my company is emotional or rational and I should listen to it as opposed to a legitimate reason? And he says, in other words, are the reasons you have heard people say why they're thinking of selling that you would tell them to just keep going? Uh, interesting question, Joe. So, so yeah, I mean, we talk about pull and push factors at Value Builder. The push factors are the things that the emotional reasons you want to sell, right? So, uh, can't hire employees, can't keep employees, uh, you know, prices are going up, costs, input costs, cost of goods sold are going up, government regulation, blah, 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 blah. They're all, all you, you could list off thousands of reasons people want to sell. And, and after the pandemic, it's, it's, even more amplified, right? Because people have had this, in many cases, life and death experience. Someone close to them has, oft, has, has often been, you know, fallen ill. Others have had people die. So it is, it's, it's this kind of reckoning for a lot of people, and and it's causing people to have this sort of emotional reaction. And those are all push factors, which are natural. What we found is that the most, the happiest entrepreneurs after they sell. Um, are ones with more pull factors. So Joe, what I would, in your case, I would, as many push factors as you probably have, which is legitimate, I would is also- Is that like a sorry, fear versus like, would you, is push kind of like fear-based? Yeah, you know, the, yeah. the old people buy to avoid fear, or mm. move away from fear or mm -hmm. pain or, or into pleasure. Yeah, so the, the idea of a pull factor is to move towards pleasure. It's like, what is it that you want uh, to do, um, mm. someone just pointed me to nomad list. Have you ever seen this, Jeremy? Mm -mm, no, nomadlist.com. It basically is a website for digital nomads and it lists everywhere in the world, all the cities you can imagine wanting to live. And it's got, it rates them based on their internet connectivity, how much a one bedroom apartment costs the weather, et cetera. And I, someone sent it to me a few minutes before our call. So I was on there, but my point is, like go to a site like that and start to visualize like what mm. do you want your life to be like after you sell? Do you want to live in another country, another state, another place? Um, how do you envision that working? Are you going to start another business, start a charity, uh, you know, get fit, uh, run a marathon? Like, what is it that you're excited to go do? And and the more Joe you can you can you can articulate mm. that clearly and 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 own it wear it in your own mind i think you will be happy whatever happens in your exit uh you know but i think focusing on the push factors all the things you're frustrated by while they may provide the spark they're also probably not going to lead to the happiest exit in the long run i hope that's right helpful, joe yeah that's great i love that that's great so think about the push and the pull um and there is there a resource on uh what, what book or a place on the website should they yeah, prescore.com is where people can go to get their prescore you can okay. you can evaluate your personal readiness to exit your company and we look at the five dimensions that often lead to a happy exit and one okay. of them is whether you push factors or pulse factors so yeah just prescore.com awesome check that out um so pete ingram couchy yeah what a great I, story this is this is a wild story and you know, you he like you just shows up super modest, super humble, and I didn't read anything when I first listened to the episode. I just kind of observed, and um, it was just an amazing story. So Pete and Alexa, their siblings, they started ID Tech to offer summer camps for kids who wanted to learn about computers. What were you gonna say? Let me yeah. stop. Let me stop you there. Like, Go can ahead. you imagine running your a business for twenty years with your sister? Like that was my first question. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like I'm trying to visualize like with your with no. like not your wife or your husband. No, this is his sister. I'm like, that is a rest. I've been watching Succession. I don't know if you've been watching that show, but oh my god. No, I haven't. Like, 
a recipe for disaster. But anyways, he was happy and they ran it presumably successfully for literally 20 plus years. Better him than me. Good for him. Well, you have a strong opinion on bringing family or kids into the business. Oh, you're going to get me in trouble again. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm not a big fan. Uh, I think it works in for some. Who? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, okay. The internet. <laughs> no, I, I think if it's your wife, we should stop talking. But if no, it's someone no, it's else, that's wife. that's okay. Okay. No, I think. Look, I think, I think family business transitions can work, and and there are you know there are examples of of family businesses that are passed down from generation to generation. I just see the toll it takes on the family, and so it's not really a business podcast topic. It's more of a parenting topic that. And I'm not a parenting expert, nor do I want to give anybody parenting <laughs> advice. But for me personally, as a parent, it's not right for me. I, I think I see so many examples uh, of of businesses going like getting through transitions and the family not. There's a one spectacularly bad example right now going on in Canada with the Rogers family. Uh, Ted Rogers built a billion dollar telecom company massive success on any measure uh and 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 kind of did this transition passed away a couple of years ago and, and and is in the midst of this sort of they're in the midst of this family transition and it's just an it's just a modern day real life example of succession that you know the, the the two sibling the three siblings aren't talking to each other the mom is playing referee and has sided with the two daughters and the son is on the outs i mean it's a disaster and it, look the business is thriving. It's a big telecom and it's fine. It's massive yeah. success, millions of millions and millions of dollars. The family is destroyed as a result. Yeah. And that's the part that I think is so tragic. Yeah. But anyways, Pete and Alexa nailed it. So yeah. if you're into family businesses, this is a great story. And maybe maybe there's something that's better starting it together from the get-go as opposed maybe. to succession. Who knows? But I, this is, I wanted your take and your opinion. Obviously, if you're listening out there, you do what you think is right for you. Um, but their business grew each year. Um, by 2019, it was generating $70 million in annual sales, hosting camps from Stanford to MIT, all over the place. And um, COVID-19 hit. Um, and I detect like many businesses with less with contracts, with schools, thousands of instructors, employees, no ability to run in-person camps, and they needed to pivot. And so they actually used this as an excuse to, and they always, they always had on their docket, like we needed to do in this online training portion. So they used this excuse to shift their camps and content to online. And so in 2021, they're back. They were expecting, uh, they are expecting 45 million in revenue from mostly from the online camps, which was interesting in the interview that increased their um, actual uh, you know, value, it seemed. Emeritus saw that, offered to acquire them for $200 million. And the yeah, deal closed should, in May. So, And we should be clear, Jamie, the, the camps they offered were coding and technology camps. So uh, if that wasn't immediately clear, the, the, uh, the idea was that in 98, when they started, literally 1998, this goes back a long time, you know, their parents were both educators and they realized that they're not learning about computers in school. And so this was a time when the personal computer is, is obviously becoming a, a very dominant part of everybody's life. And yet none of the schools that they went to were really teaching them anything about not even how to use, like not how to code, but how to even use a computer. And so their idea, the kernel was to help kids understand technology at, at a summer camp. And, and, and here's what I found interesting about the story. You know, if you just read the, hit, the headline, ID Tech acquired by Emeritus, you know, the ed tech giant for $200 million, I think the layperson uh, would look at that headline and think, wow, what a great idea. They do coding, like they, they offer coding courses online. And here we are in COVID, everybody's stuck at home. Lots of people have been let go from their jobs. Well, they had, you know, they were at the right time, you know, right place at the right time. How lucky are they that they came up with a brilliant idea of doing coding courses online? 
And I think that's the way it will play for 99% of people who hear that headline and they'll be jealous and think, oh, why didn't I come up with that idea? What it fails to encapsulate is the 22 years of work that Pete and Alexa did up until that point. To, your, you know, to go back to your introduction, they got their start in the kludgy analog world of running summer camps for kids, right? They got to get the juice boxes to the picnic tables mm -hmm. and they got to make sure that the kids have a place to go pee. And like, that's the <laughs> kind of walking tackling they were doing to yeah. run these little camps. And they first started on a local campus where they rented out a little space and, 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 and you know, they got this business over 21 years from, you know, a couple of camps and a couple of campuses to like, as you said, I think it was 70 million in revenue. So like, this is a big, business, they had the courage and discipline to build over two decades, right? Like, and, and when COVID hit, they, they literally went to zero because you can't do summer camps where kids can't go on campuses. And, and, and so they literally went from 70 to zero and they reinvented themselves as, okay, well, if we can't do them in person, we'll do them online. They reinvented themselves as online courses for people who want to code and and that's when they got the attention of Emeritus that wanted a is a big ed tech business. They built it, you know, they they acquired it for two hundred million dollars. But again, I think what's 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 what will be lost for most people is the only way they knew how to build the courses online was because they looked into the whites of eyes for kids for twenty years and learned the hard way of how to actually deliver content. And I get frustrated with people, and I'm sure a lot of listeners to this who have successful businesses, you know, they'll, you know, Thanksgiving, they'll get, you know, their, their, you know, young nieces and nephews will come up to them and go, oh, I really want to start a business just like you. I just don't have an idea. And when I get that, I get a little frustrated because I'm like, you know, Howard Schultz didn't come up with the idea of coffee shops, right? Like he went to Italy, they were brewing like strong coffee and he said, like, I can do that. And he came back inspired and Starbucks was, he acquired the two stores and it became this giant business. It's not that coming up with the idea of a store to make, sell coffee is that revolutionary. And I think the idea of teaching kids how to code at summer camps is not revolutionary. It, you know, and, and I think too many people sit on the sidelines, don't start businesses because they, quote, don't have an idea. And yet Pete and Alexa, you know, they didn't have some brilliant idea of creating some ed tech company. They just were trying to create some basic summer camps. And I, I think that's just a really good lesson for everybody. It's not the idea that makes your business successful. It's the execution. It's the long, long road to uh, to success that people need to take. I love that you went on that that angle because we don't see behind the scenes. And he even shared a story, one of my favorite stories of a lot of the podcasts that you've done, where he's driving a truck. I mean, he's driving the truck, transporting computers right. to this facility, and the back door opens and they they're flying off the highway. Right? Do you remember right. that? And yeah, someone's seeing. Story about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine that's like a lot of revenue. I mean, I don't remember what what year it was but it was a year where probably computers were worth a lot of money and they weren't normal today like they are now and it was just he did everything he was like put posters up he would you know so he really rolled up his sleeves and, and built this so it was Absolutely. cool to hear those yeah, yeah. And, and these days it's you know, it's frustrating. You can't open a, a web browser without seeing some idea being funded on TechCrunch for some uh, obnoxious amount of money and they haven't even done anything yet it reminds me of 1999 all over again and i think you know it's just a good reminder that the vast 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 majority of businesses are just a lot of work it's like the, you know like the duck pedaling their feet underneath the water you like you don't see that they just look like great as duck or or is it no you're or, right yeah it's, it's the duck yeah you they look yeah, just like they're sitting there just but, graceful sitting there but they're, totally. <laughs> they're like you're firing on all cylinders underneath the water line same is true for most businesses that i know of it's like you never want to see how the sausage is made it's hard work and if you're willing to do it it can have tremendous payoffs as pete and alexa enjoyed uh but it ain't easy and it's uh and it takes time 
What I want you to to talk a little bit about, John, is um, what I thought when it came to selling the company, it was interesting how they were thinking and exploring a partnership with mm. that company first. And I'm curious how often that happens. Is that a good approach when you're thinking of, you know, this is a maybe a good acquirer. Maybe we could do stuff together first. What are your thoughts on that? And then it kind of naturally yeah. happened. Yeah, the P word is a, is a great uh, word to use to approach and acquire without losing your negotiating leverage. So if you're interested in selling your company and yet you don't want to go hat in hand and groveling to an acquirer saying, oh, would you please buy my company, which of course is a recipe for undermining the value of your company, you can go to that acquirer and say, look, I think we're playing in the same kind of ecosystem. Uh, I'd love to talk about a, a potential partnership. Savvy CEOs and corporate development people hear the word partnership and, and they can read between the lines and know that potentially acquisitions on the table, uh, but you have plausible deniability. You can still turn around and say, no, no, I, did, you know, I didn't mean to suggest I want you to acquire us. I, you know, I, I really was genuinely interested in partnership. And so I think that, that gives you plausible de de deniability and allows you to sort of uh, continue to, you know, and negotiate from a position of strength. So. Uh, I, I think that's a, that's an approach that uh, that worked for Pete and Alexa, and I, and I think yeah. it, it's a solid way to uh, approach acquires. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from Wayne, and Wayne asks, "What factors do you look at to determine the right time to sell the business?" Yeah, this is a good one, Wayne. Uh, great question. Um, and, and look, I think every entrepreneur wants to maximize the value of their company. Uh, you know, squeeze the lemon, get to the to the pot, you know, the highest possible run rate that you can, and and sell at exactly the same time where the economy is booming and interest rates are low. I mean, like everybody kind of has that vision in their mind, and and it's one of the kind of most common uh, frustrations of people who serve this market. I know a lot of the certified value builders that we work with find this frustrating is that entrepreneurs are always kind of permanently five years away from selling, right? That, you know, you, you talk to them and say, like, are you thinking of selling? And they're like, oh yeah, five, you know, five or six years from now. <laughs> I think we, and then you show up five years later and you're like, hey, you ready to sell? And they're like, no, no, we're still sort of four or five years away from selling. And so like, this is perpetual five years away. In any event, I think it's dangerous because you never know, you know, when the next black swan is going to be coming around the bend, right? Like nobody interpreted or 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 expected, I should say, uh, a global pandemic, but it happened. And so, I think Wayne, the, the the time for you to ask yourself the question is when you reach the freedom point. The freedom point is is the point at which the sale of your company, when combined with your assets outside of your company would create enough liquid wealth for you to live for the rest of your life comfortably. It's effectively where work becomes an option, uh, becomes because you want to work, not because you have to work. And and when you reach the freedom point, I think it's worth at least exploring is now the right time for you. Because for a lot of entrepreneurs, you, you know, I think some people want to be the next Elon Musk, the next Jeff Bezos. Most people don't. Most people actually really crave freedom, right? Like that's why they start a business in the first place. They they want to create something. They want independence. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. They want to, they want in their gut. They want they create that sense of independence, and they think business ownership is a way to get there. And then when you reach the freedom point where selling your business would give you the ultimate in independence, being able to choose to work, it's worth just exploring that. Yeah, I think it was Warren Buffett who said, I may be getting the quote wrong, but I think the the sentiment is is generally right. I think he said something effective. You know, it's insane to risk what you crave for something you do not want. And if you crave independence and selling your company would give that to you, financial freedom effectively, it's crazy to risk that for something that you may not want. Like is an extra zero in your bank account that important to you when you've reached financial freedom? Maybe it's not. And uh, I think that's a, a point to pull up. And, and again, a lot of entrepreneurs don't really think about this, but but if if you've you know when you start your business is worthless generally and so it's like zero percent of your net worth but then if you built it to be sec successful as pete and alexa did i dare say at 200 million dollars it was the vast 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 majority of their wealth right like 90 plus percent of their wealth was in their company and 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 that's and then for pete and alexa they reached that 
they, they got a cold shower when COVID hit, right? All of a sudden, they had the vast majority of their wealth in their company and, and it went to zero overnight. They were lucky. They were able to pivot and it, it worked out well for them. Not everybody will be. So I think it's worth when you reach the freedom point, pulling up and saying, you know, is now the time? You know, John, when you take some when you when you take some knocks on the chin, like Jay, and like you know, with the the lawsuit and with right, so funny you that know, both Jay and Pete went, you know, had these disaster scenarios, and and it it really informed them in a big way, like it changed their point of view. It's like anything can happen. I think a lot of the entrepreneurs, we probably know, they have a healthy paranoia because as things happen, you just are. I guess it goes back into what you said about the push. All these push things are kind of rolling around in your head on what could happen. And it's a risk, right? Yeah. It's yeah. A, it, in particular, when you've got a large proportion of your net worth tied to your business, it's a, it's obviously a more acute risk than. So that's, you know. I love that advice. So I guess one of the things is you can. You know, you talk about that freedom point in Built to Sell, and people should think about, and I remember in the book where they write that down, they put it in the envelope, right? They seal it. Yeah, yeah. And um, you, I guess you're instructing people, you should think about your freedom point. So you know absolutely. where you're at, right? Yeah, absolutely. Know what know what your number is. And and that's not because you're some greedy, you know, mercenary entrepreneur or that, you, you know, your your whole life is defined by money. But, but no, just like know what your number is that work becomes optional and i think when you know another uh, interview we talked about um with cheryl conti we talked last time and she talks about exiting there were four degrees of wealth right when you sell your company everybody thinks about the giant 200 million dollar exit like pete and alexa had in actual fact there's four stages of wealth right there are four types of exits the first is what she referred to as a as, as sort of salvaging your dignity an aqua hire when you're not really getting much money but they hire you and, and agree to hire your employees the second is a car i think she referred to it as a car exit where you know it's it's like 50 or 100 grand and it's really your training wheel business it's it allows you to learn the process and and exit and then take everything you learn about the process and then go uh build another business the third you know stage is 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 what she referred to as your house type exit which is you know you pay off your house it's hundreds of thousands if not low millions of dollars where you have that maslow's hierarchy of needs that the first rung uh you're on the first rung meaning your security like where you're going to sleep at night your mortgage is, you know, non-existent anymore, and so you're forever. You get that peace of mind to know that at least you've covered your nut from a from a from a housing perspective. And then the fourth stage she talked about, which is the big spectacular exit that allows you to reach the point that work becomes an option, and and that's I think it's it's worth kind of revisiting that for folks that you know you don't have to have a, a pete and alexa style exit to have a, a worthwhile exit there's lots of different happy you know exits that that are materially you know beneficial for for the folks that go through them yeah um we have a couple we have time for a couple more questions with this section so i'm gonna i'm gonna um read these but there's another one i don't remember if you had him on john but Rand fishkin talks oh, gosh, about yeah. his story yeah. so he got you know he talks about it publicly that he got that he should have taken the deal and and kind of what that was like so yeah um, yeah he his book is called lost and founder and and his episode you can just google built to sell Rand fishkin it's a yeah. great episode he's such a gifted speaker uh yeah mark halligan offered him 25 million dollars of hubspot's cash and hubspot stock he said no uh and over time his his the value of his shares and his view went to close to zero uh, at the same time, the HubSpot stock that he would have been offered went all the way to $200 million of value. So he, he, he effectively left close to $200 million on the table, not taking that deal. And it's just exactly. a good reminder that uh, that we don't know what's around the bend. Yeah. And when you reach the freedom point, it's worth at least pulling up and saying, is, is, is now the time? Yeah, because he saw that growth. He's like, we've been growing. So in a couple of years... Yeah, yeah. Um, so and look, um, we're all optimists, right? Like, I if you were an optimist, you wouldn't start your own business. Like, that's it's part of the wiring. Yeah. Like, you if you're a conservative pessimist, you don't become an entrepreneur. If you're, uh, you know, a relatively optimistic person, it's a great career choice. So by default, we have a blind spot in this area. Like by default, we our wiring 
fails us, right? Because we always think tomorrow is going to be better than today. And, uh, and so I think it's it's great having an advisor, frankly, um, to to kind of call you out on that and say, hey, like, I know you think tomorrow is going to be better, but listen, it's been pretty good for the last couple of years. Is now the time. So Jonathan asks, recently we were offered 12 times EBITDA for the business, but our EBITDA was low due to heavy investments we're making in um, product development. Investors did not take this into consideration and we declined. So now we're focused on hitting the EBITDA target in 18 months to hit the valuation we want for exit. Investors didn't consider our purpose or investment in the future. How do you manage this balance when buyers are focused on numbers only when we've got a great story to tell? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I would have you you really understand normalized EBITDA versus EBITDA. So uh, there's a process that a good M&A professional will take you through. I think the, the the person asking the question is Jonathan. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So Jonathan, um, you're really you're really going to want to work with a, a a high-end mergers and acquisitions professional who is experienced in this area because what they're going to do is a normalized EBITDA. And normalized EBITDA basically tries to express your profitability under normal circumstances. And something like, uh, you know, like a heavy investment in a product that is going to be a core product for you for years to come into the future should be uh, adjusted either marginally or entirely out of your EBITDA because as an accountant will tell you, you can spread that out over the life of the, of the, the value of, of the product that you think of, of launching. And there are all sorts of other adjustments that you can make to come up with a normalized EBITDA. And, and there's a great episode of Built to Sell Radio. If you want to Google it, I think it's Built to Sell Ari Ackerman. If you Google those, Built to Sell Ari Ackerman, he sold a company called Bunk One. And his story is amazing. I'll just give you the, the, calls and the, the short version. Uh, he goes out and a private equity company makes an offer for the business and it's not enough. It doesn't meet his threshold. It sounds, sounds a lot like your story, Jonathan, in the sense that he's got a number in mind, like a, a, a headline number in mind, and the offer doesn't reach that. And when he tries to like get underneath the, the reason they're lowballing him, the private equity group says, look, we have a limit. Our investment committee will not let us exceed X multiple of EBITDA. I don't remember what the multiple was at the time, but like it's it's written in the constitution. Like we can't, you know, buy a business for any more than, than that multiple of earnings. And so Ari kind of puts his thinking cap on and says, okay, well, like, uh, how can I increase my earnings in their view? And he went through the normalization process, right? Aggressively normalizing his personal uh, profit and loss statement so that uh, scrubbing out one-time expenses, amortizing stuff that would have a lifetime over value, et cetera. And he dramatically improved his profitability and his normalized EBITDA. They applied the same multiple. So the multiple didn't change, but because it was being applied against a much larger profitability line, he hit his threshold, hit his number and, and along and, and sold his company. So you might, you might want to go back and listen to that episode. The, the point, though, is there is a difference between profitability and normalized EBITDA, and you're going to want to work with a really good M&A professional, the best you can possibly find or hire, uh, to to help you with that normalization process. Because it sounds like you've got a great business that's very acquirable. You just need to express your profits in a way that uh, that is that, that puts your best foot forward. Thanks for that question. Jonathan. So on to Ted and Arlene Tavares, and they've been growing their insurance consultancy for 20 years when they received an unsolicited acquisition offer for 12 and a half times EBITDA. So as it was, they were considering it, they wondered, well, what if we shop it around, right? And so they actually did a formal process and they garnered another 27 uh, companies interested, 12 made a formal offer, and they ended up deciding on a cash offer that was 16 times earnings. Um, and this was a very interesting, again, I think she had said she listened to every episode of your podcast, John. She's read the book. Uh, so this was a great one. Um, and I even reached out to her before this, before our call. And I'm like, you know, you were you know, not grilled, but you were interviewed by John. Um, do you have any questions? So I actually have a question from her oh, to you cool. after we're done. Uh, so okay. what what did you like about Arlene and Ted? 
Well, so much. I mean, they're great. They're such smart and savvy business people. Two things that come to mind immediately. One uh, is the power of shopping your deal, right? So they got 12 times. They got an offer unsolicited 12 times. If it does, you point out in your introduction, uh, they were tempted, right? Like bird in the hands were two in the bush. Man, that's a huge multiple. It, it was, you know, it's a, somewhat of a professional services business, although they had some technology, but it was still fairly service-based. And like 12 times is a massive multiple for a service business. Ted was like, we can get more. Arlene's like, man, I don't know. That's a big number. And Ted's like, no, no, just stay the course. And I think he said, like, do you remember when, when they, you know, anyways. So they chopped the deal. They put together a prospectus and they did it formally. And they went out to the market and said, here's the business and here's what it does. They normalized their EBITDA to, to create the, the SIM, the Confidential Information Memorandum. And they got all of these offers and and one of which was or the one they settled on was again 16 and a change 16 and and a bit times EBITDA so they they effectively you know got four extra times or four turns as M&A people talk about by shopping the deal and some people say like oh why you know why do I want an M&A person uh you know they're just going to charge me a fee and it's going to be like a, some six figure commission and i you know i they didn't build the business i built it and, and and i tell you know when i hear that i tell them stories like ted narlene's because i'm like th this guy added this MA professional running the would have added you know multiple millions of dollars to their take even though he or she probably charged a few hundred thousand dollars for their services. So on a net basis, it was way better. So I'm a big believer in the power of, of using an M&A professional. The second, the, th the second sort of big bucket of insight I, f I felt like Ted and Arlene really drove home was, was this idea of how do you build a business that, that doesn't depend on you, which of course is, is everything we talk about at Value Builder. It's like the theme of Built to Sell. It's like, how do you get a company to not, to be dependent on you. And they did a couple things. The first is, is they shared um, some of their key metrics, their key financials with their employees. And they said, you know, that was a, that was a key turning point for us because being transparent, uh, it's not for everybody and you want to do it intelligently, but being transparent allowed people to see where the money went. And, and they told stories on the episode of, of like, you know, rank and file employees, kind of junior employees making different decisions because they knew how the money in the company was being spent. So I think that's a cool way to get your employees to sort of act a bit more like owners. The second thing they did, and you mentioned this out of the, uh, out of the top, off the top, is they created standard operating procedures. Huge, you know, they use video because they weren't, they were, they were remote. So they weren't, you know, they weren't, uh, they weren't physically with their, their employees. And so uh, they used video as a way to show employees how Ted and Arlene wanted it done. And, and, you know, a lot of companies, if you look at their secret sauce, it, it comes down to the, the little curious ways the founders want the business to be delivered. Like they want clients to be served. And, and it's one thing to look at, you know, a generic SOP template. It's a very different thing to try to document your secret sauce, like what it is that that really makes your company truly unique and different. To go back to Pete and Alexia, it was not just that they could teach people how to code. It was because they they really understood how kids learn, and that was their secret sauce. In the case of Ted and Arlene, they had their own methodologies, and so they taught them in in these video SOPs. So I think that was a really cool thing that they did is to, is to really codify their the essence of what they did and what made them unique. And then the third kind of element of creating their business so that it would be successful without Ted and Arlene was they actually moved physically to Puerto Rico. Their company was founded and, and ran in Texas and they literally moved. And I've heard this a lot. I had another entrepreneur I interviewed uh, recently who moved time zones. And he thought he felt that being in a different time zone, in his case, it was six or eight hours away from his his employee base, really empowered his employees to do the work, right? Because when the boss is sleeping or away, there's no real opportunity to ask him or her what to do. And so Ted and Arlene kind of did that. They created this separation physically where they moved to Puerto Rico. And it was, I think it was, it was difficult in the first few months 
because employees kind of were like, well, we're Ted and Arlene and they still needed direction, but physically being in another country and this got another uh, state and protectorate, whatever, <laughs> they were in another area. It forced employees to sort of step up and act like owners. So those three things I think uh, really got Ilsa running uh, as a separate entity and, and, and I think led to their, their sent, you know, amazing exit. I want to point out too, um, you have a resource built to sell.com slash SOP, which is a definitive guide ebook to SOPs. So I would go there, check it out because that is a, that comes up time and time again on all of these interviews. What a, a lot of times separates the, you know, the successful ones, the easy transition ones is the SOPs. So You're people can check right. that out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to sort of turnkey you know, people buy real estate when it's turnkey. Like nobody wants to buy a house that needs a lot of work. I mean, some people who are into like, you know, DIY and home improvement like doing that, but most people want to buy a house where they can walk in and, and it's just turnkey. Like it's beautiful. It's, it's fine. And, and, and real estate agents will tell you like, that's, that's how you drive a premium for your home is you make it turnkey and you do all the external sort of fluffing so that it's a great experience, right? It, Investors look at it and say, I could easily rent that out. Homeowners look at it and say, I could move in and, and be comfortable the day I move in. And so using that same analogy and extrapolating to your business is important. I think when you look at an acquirer and, and, and they can look at your business and say, man, this, this thing is turnkey. Like all the systems are there. All the processes are documented. I can you know, on day one run this company. I know the dials to move and the levers to pull to make this business run. Like that's a really irresistible business. Whereas if it's kind of kludgy and looks like it's you know held together with duct tape and the owner working 20 hours a day, like that's not a turnkey business. It's gonna be really tough to sell that business. We have a, a bunch of questions. I'm gonna make note of them. So if we don't get to them today, I will bring them up on the next webinar. But um, I'm gonna start with Arlene's, John. So I asked her, uh, what questions do you have for John? And she said, is there anything he feels we could have done differently to avoid the emotional roller coaster that I went through during this process? Oh man, uh, it is emotional, and I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if I have any tremendous words of wisdom. Um, it's it's emotional, right? I mean, when people are you're you're talking about life changing money being you know, exchanging hands beyond the money. It's also validation. It's what you've worked for years and someone is, is finally validating what you've built and it can be very uh, intoxicating. And, and once it gets pulled away, the rug gets pulled away, it, it can be devastating. And so I guess, you know, Ted and Arlene shared that although they're happily married and, you know, all, all is good, I think it was somewhat tense at that time when, you know, like Arlene was like, this is a huge offer. 12 times even is an amazing offer. And, and Ted was like, no, we can, we can do it. Ted was, uh, it, I, I think he was, he practices yoga and meditation and it was like just stoic and, and then knew that he could do better and, and we're going to stay the course. But I think Arlene, again, reading the between the lines a little bit, uh, may have gone on a bit more of an emotional yeah. sort of up and down. And I don't know how I would coach her to, to get through that. I, um, you know, again, maybe go back to what we talked about earlier, which is the freedom point, which is, you know, if you're, if you're able to have an exit and, and sort of get to the point where, where you don't have to sell your company or, you know, it, it can, it can make it less emotional because it's more of a transaction. And that's, by the way, one of the big frustrations that owners have with buyers because buyers, whether they're private equity groups, corporate development people, I mean, they're mercenary and cold. They're, they're oftentimes investing other people's money, right? It's a job for them. It's not their livelihood. They didn't create the business. It's not their child. And so it's one of the, it's one of the areas where founders and and buyers it's like it's like oil and water right like they they just almost always sort of can't see eye to eye with one another because again acquires is unemotional it's like i want to make an investment i want to make that grow and then get get a return for founders it's like my baby so i you know i don't i don't know if i have any words to wisdom no i like i like that um <laughs> that advice because it almost bridges what you said 
because they're coming at or whoever the the PE or VC they're coming from at a very objective unemotional and when you talk about the freedom point that almost puts an objective measure to take the emotion out of it for the founder so i mean there's still going to be emotion but it's like does it hit this? So there's some objective measure in place. So I, I like that advice because it's hard to coach someone around emotions, but but it, you put some objectivity, um, you know, in that process for them. I think um, there's um, two more questions. I don't know if you want to take one or leave them for next time. I know we have a couple of minutes left. Um, yeah, let's hit them quick. Well, I'll give okay. you a, like we'll do so, we'll do a, a power round. One of <laughs> them. So here's one uh, by John. He said, if a company plateaus for a number of years, is it a sign to sell to an acquirer who can take it to the next level, next stage? Generally, it means you've written it over the top. In other words, acquirers want to see growth. They want to see a trajectory of growth. And so selling now, you'll take a deep discount because they'll make the case that your best days are be beyond you. So. I would have liked to have had you sold before you hit the plateau, and that's obviously revisionist history. It's impossible to know when you're gonna hit that plateau. But my advice would be uh, to get some growth back in the company and start growing again, start to show that 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 trajectory upwards, and then look to sell. Because if you sell now, unfortunately, I think it will be, I don't wanna say fire sale, but you will, you will take a discounted valuation because you've reached that plateau. Uh, I sort of hear that, but I hope, uh, I hope uh, you can, you can kick up the, the top line again and, and, uh, and then sell after that. Um, this question, uh, it's, it's, there's a little backstory to it, so I'll go through it quickly, but we're going through a construction boom in New Zealand and we have two years work ahead of us along with really good profit. After that, we're expecting a recession. Along with good profits, we're also experiencing a lot of inflation that's chewing away at the profits. Um, now would be the best time to sell my company with so much work on the books and great profit history. However, the upcoming recession inflation could detract buyers. Any tips on how to sell my company in this type of situation? Well, to, to the extent that you can get contracts with the, the, the deals that you have for the next two years, that's going to help if, if you've got hard deals like you know written contracts with the people to to do the building that you anticipate over the next couple of years that's going to help i think i mean man like there's no better time to sell when you've got uh, you know you've got a two-year run rate uh, of deals in the pipeline that are contract contracted so uh, you know i think waiting two years while your company may be more profitable in two years if if, if it's going to look a lot different like you don't have the pipeline you've got a, a recessionary environment uh, you know, that's going to be a much tougher. So, I, I mean, I think, I think all signs are that it would be a great time to sell. Again, I, I can't speak directly to, uh, to your situation because I'm, I'm, I don't know enough of the details, but at least superficially what I'm hearing is if you can get contracts, it's, it's probably a great time to sell. The other thing I would say is that in, in a construction business, you're likely to have to deal with an earnout, And an earnout is where you agree to take some of your proceeds up front, but a large portion of them is often put at risk in an earnout, and if you've got a two-year pipeline, you can feel pretty confident that you're going to hit your earnout. If you if you wait two years from now and then sell, and your pipeline is is lower, you're probably still going to have an earnout, except you're going to have to do it in a recession without a pipeline. And so again, I I, I think uh, I'd be I'd be keen to look at at alternatives now as opposed to waiting. But again, I I don't want to be too prescriptive without knowing your exact situation. So best, uh, you know, best to talk to your advisor for, uh, for a, uh, for a more detailed pr uh, perspective. Jared, thanks for that question. Um, I just want to point people towards built slash radio, um, to check out more episodes and come tell other people to come on the webinar next month because you can ask your questions, get your questions answered and hear John's insights. You can check that out. Um, and also go to builttocell.com slash SOP to check that resource out. And John, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you. It was fun, Jeremy. We'll do it again in a month. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. 
The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.